Now, Scotland's talking. Call 0333-2020-401 and join the debate. Hello and a very good morning. Welcome to this week's edition of Scotland's Talking. I'm Ali Bally. Coming up on the programme, we're going to be finding out why Scotland's only charity air ambulance is trying to raise £6 million to buy a second life-saving helicopter. I'll be chatting to Chief Executive David Craig, who says they're needed more than ever. We are now over 1,700 calls. Um, we're averaging about one and a half calls per day. We hope that you never need an air ambulance, but now you know that there's, there's going to be another one on its way. And after 11, we're going to be talking about what the older and younger generations can learn from each other. I think that sometimes young people can conform to the stereotypes that they're put into, like they're lazy, but as a matter of fact, if they are given the chance to do something different and more interesting, they'll definitely take it. That's Chloe, who's going to be telling us all about the Year of the Young People 2018 and how she's trying to get teenagers thinking about all the things they could be doing with their lives. We'll also be meeting Bassett, who says he doesn't want to be put in a box. I became quite disenchanted by the set paths and set structures set out for young people. And I felt like finding my own path. And I think a lot of young people resonate with that. And could Alexa be the answers to getting kids to remember their P's and Q's? Sorry, I'm having trouble understanding right now. Please try a little later. Amazon is going to reprogram its voice-activated gizmo so it only responds to children who say please and thank you. It's on the way from Scotland's Talking. Music and conversation for a Sunday morning. Scotland's Talking, the podcast. Uh, Starting off the programme today with uh, a subject that I know quite a lot about, so I shall hold my hand up here and say that um, Scotland's charity Air Ambulance is uh, a charity that I think is a fantastic charity and I do a little bit of volunteering here and there and go out and about and tell people uh, what the charity is all about because it's a fairly uh, young charity. And this week it was announced that they were going to try and get a second helicopter in the sky. So uh, I thought a great time to get the chief executive to tell us why they need this and how you can help. I will tell you that in a moment, Uh, you know. Be great if you know you've you got a load of money and you can give it to us. That'd be great. If not, um, we're looking for your suggestions as to possibly where it should be located because that hasn't been decided yet. But I'll say a very good morning to my guest this morning, uh, Chief Executive of Scotland's Charity Air Ambulance, David Craig. David, good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Right. So um, we this week it was announced that you you've decided to to put another. Uh, helicopter in the sky. Before that, just take us back and tell us how this all started and where you are now. Well, we launched um, over five, uh, nearly, nearly five years ago, uh, 22nd of May 2013. But obviously there was a great deal of work um, prior to that to, to effectively get us launched by um, some of the trustees that, that, that remain with the charity. Um, and we've come a long way in that short five years. Um, we were we were the youngest air ambulance charity in the whole of the UK up until last year when, when Northern Ireland um, brought one air ambulance into service. Um, but since then, you know, we've um, participated in over 1,700 calls. We have, through the support of the people of Scotland, raised over £10 million. Uh, and we've constantly improved the capability of our existing aircraft over the last kind of few years as well. And that's the key thing here. This is about us trying to enhance the service that, that we provide and which we offer. And the announcement that we that we, we made during this week is the next stage in that development. Right. So let's just concentrate for a, a bit here. Scotland's only charity air ambulance. So that means that the money you're raising, the money that the public give, that's the only income that you have. You don't get government funding. Then. We get no government funding whatsoever. Um, we don't fit the criteria for national lottery funding either. So effectively what we do is 100% it comes from funds from the public. And they have demonstrated that remarkably well in, in, in those five years. This year we've probably raised about £2.5 million. Um, this is the existing service that we actually have. Um, we'll probably need to increase that 
over the next 12 months to nearly £3 million. And then, of course, we're looking at raising another £6 million over the next few years to bring our second air ambulance into service. These figures sound quite eye-watering at times, um, but it always amazes me how, uh, yes, you get your your larger benefactor coming in, which you've got to have. You've got to have these uh, corporate supporters, which is great. But even just people uh, raising uh, through a coffee morning or or indeed, as as I've been at your headquarters and seen some, a couple of wee boys coming in with their granddad who'd been rescued and they were giving some of their pocket money and that is so important, isn't it? Because every 10 pence makes a pound, as they say, and it it just all goes up there. So it doesn't matter how little you give or, or how much, it's it's all going to a great cause. No, it doesn't. And it's very humbling to, to you know, to, to know that story of, of, of children coming in. Um, and we've had some kids come in who have sold some of their toys and mm. donated the money to the charity. And you go from from that end to you know to the traditional methods of of people just putting that pound in or whatever it is in the collecting can, or giving it the petrol stations. And, you know, and there's no ways that you can do that. Um, to our large corporate supporters, um, to people who want to play our life saving lottery from just a pound a week, um, to a whole host of other things that we do. It, it's quite remarkable. Um, it does seem very eye-watering and I have to kind of sometimes pinch myself that it is a significant challenge for us over the next few years. Um, but we're very confident um, in our ability and I think we've demonstrated that. But I think more importantly, I think the people of Scotland have, have bought into this very well. Um, and they are the ones who are supporting Scotland's only charity, Air Ambulance. And we're very proud that we can um, call upon them. And I guess that's my, my message to them is keep continuing to support us. And we'll need you more than ever over the next kind of few years. And um, we're, we're say we're very confident of, of bringing this uh, to reality. Right. Okay. So the uh, when you look at the helicopter, I mean, going back to the early days, um, there were there was discussions going on as, as as you and I know to to bring this to fruition, and there would be the doubters that uh, said, "Well, this service isn't really needed," but uh, over seventeen hundred. Um, life-saving missions have been carried out in that short period. In 1700, that's amazing. Absolutely, and you know, whilst I wasn't there in the very early days, um, I can certainly speak on behalf of some of my board of trustees who, who were there, and I think um, it was certainly placed upon them that you know the likelihood of this um, and the call-outs were, were on the low side. Um, now, we've worked very hard and very close with um, the Scottish Ambulance Service, who are basically our key stakeholders and our key partners. And there are two government air ambulances of which um, they operate, and that's 24-7, and they have two fixed-wing aircraft. Um, but I think they were probably quite right to ask a number of questions in, you know, in the early days. And what we have in Scotland is completely unique to the rest of the UK, where we have this very strong third sector, public sector partnership, when you have a charity or ambulance working very closely with, with, with the government side. And that is completely different everywhere else in England, Wales and Northern Ireland is completely 100% charity or ambulances. So I think, you know, questionably, you could say, they'd be quite right to say, well, who's this coming into our patch? And it's not like that. It's absolutely not like that at all. We are fully integrated, completely seamless with them. And, um, you know, if anything, they've been hugely supportive of our plans kind of moving forward as well. And that's really, really important because without that support and without actually the need for us to do that, you know, we would be still wondering, you know, what, what's yeah. next for the charity? But we know, um, as you say, for 1,700 calls, um, we were out twice yesterday, um, over to the kind of Lothians. And, you know, you could be there for one or two days and nothing really happens. But then you could be three, four, five times in one particular day and we could be anywhere in the whole of Scotland. So um, it, moving forward, it's, it's vital that we can bring another charity ambulance in, which effectively doubles the capacity that we have in Scotland. And again, when you compare that to the rest of England, Wales and Northern Ireland, there's nearly 40 air ambulances yeah, for the rest yeah. of the country. So we've got about a tenth of that or we're planning to have about a tenth of that. But we've actually got the biggest land mass um, by, in terms of percentage the rest of the UK as well. Add in the remoteness and the ruralness of it and the many islands that uh, that people live on, that Scotland is such a diverse country. Um, and, it, you know, when incidents happen and emergencies occur where you need fast um, transport to get to the scene and to deal with the patients and get them to the hospital, then this is where ambulance start to come into their own. It is because it's a case as well, you know, when you think of some of the, it can be remote areas or indeed it could be a motorway accident or, or whatever, is getting the patient to a trauma centre or to a hospital in that time critical 
situation, isn't it? Is, is getting them there as quickly as you can. Absolutely. Time critical is the key thing here, and this is what you know. Air ambulance, you know, what we bring to 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 Scotland. Um, you know, there are obviously occasions where when the calls are kind of made and you're attending to the patient, um, maybe it's not as bad as first thought, um, and perhaps it's better for them to go by land ambulance and I think it's whenever that calls come in and it's you know a 9-9 calls come in there's a lot of kind of panic and there's a lot of uncertainty and there's maybe not the full information and the full picture until you get there but you know you can't wait to get the full picture before you get there you have to get there and then assess the situation assess the patient and if they need to be transported to, to hospital and that's the most quickest way to do that and that sometimes can mean the difference between life and death Okay every time the helicopter goes up what's an average cost? Well, on average, each mission costs about £2,000. Now, um, you know, we're doing 350 400 a year. You can start to do the sums um, for that. Now, each one is different. You know, you could have a, a 10, 15-minute mission, um, but you could be way over to the west of Scotland or you could be up to the north of Scotland or to right down to the borders or to the east, you know, and actually getting there, dealing with the patient, you know, that that time element of it could be the best part of two or three hours so we, we don't talk it in cost by hour because it's very very hard to, to deal with but you know that you know the average uk air ambulance mission costs round about two thousand pound okay so um you're based at the moment uh, in schoon in uh, just outside perth that's where uh, scotland's charity air ambulance operates out of um getting a second one up in the air uh let's let's look at the numbers there Ten million is that that roughly what you're you're looking to raise? Well, it will cost us about six million pounds um, to effectively provide the first three years running costs of our second air ambulance. And let's not forget, we still need to raise two and a half to three million pounds for an existing air ambulance. So, year by year over the next year, you're looking at somewhere between about four and five million. And we like to think that by the end of those three years, um, we'll have either reached the point of you know sustainability with that second air ambulance very much like we've got to the point of we're at year five now with our first we're at that sustainability um and it's you know that's not going to go away so we reckon and we're very confident that we'll get to the end of you know the next few years having brought you know another six million pound and another two and a half million pound and bring that second air ambulance which will be have a call sign called helimed 79 right okay and um the one that we have at the moment is based, as I say, in Schoon. Is where's the second one going? Well, that's undecided at this moment in time, and I think um, you know there is a lot of work that's still to be done. Um, there is work that's been ongoing for quite some time. This isn't something that you know we, we've it's just been decided in the last week or two. Um, it's it's been part of a, the strategy of the board of, of Scotland's Charity Air Ambulance, as well as the discussions with our key partner, the Scottish Ambulance Service, about um, agreeing that this is the right thing to do. Now, the next step, and it's part of this ongoing process, is to determine the exact location of that air ambulance. And I guess we'd be very keen to hear from from listeners as to where they think that that should be. Um, but it's very hard to predict at this moment in time where it could be. What we do know is that um, we have, as part of the Scottish Trauma Network over the next few years, there are going to be four major trauma centres, Aberdeen, Dundee, Edinburgh and Glasgow. Now, we have... Our air ambulance space, as you mentioned, just, just in Schoon, just north of Perth, you have one in Glasgow and you have one in Inverness. What has to be taken into consideration is actually what's best to get somebody who has suffered severe major trauma. Um, and part of well, one of the objectives of, of the major trauma network is is to get them to those trauma centres within 45 minutes. Right. Now, it may well be that you know they will be dealt with and treated um, at their local hospital or local community hospital or doctor's surgery if they're in one of the islands but they're going to have to get to one of those major trauma centres within 45 minutes. Now, whilst a large percentage of the population can achieve that by land, there is a significant amount that simply you just can't get there within 45 minutes. And then you've added on the day-to-day work of what's going on just now, and there's about, on average, um, 3,500 requests for an air ambulance in Scotland every single year, which is quite significant. Yeah. I don't think that number's going to go down. Um I think people are living longer, people are much more healthier. There's many more people coming into this country and, and enjoying what a fabulous country it is and visiting it. Um, and also the, the percentage of the population is expected to grow over the next kind of few years as well, up to nearly kind of six million. So I think when you when you pull all that together, you start to um, highlight the need for, for an area ambulance. But that work is ongoing just now um, and there'll be ongoing consultations with the exact location. 
Okay. Um, let's go on the phone lines then. And and I would like to hear from you if uh, you have, you know, any comments or any questions you'd like to ask David about Scotland's charity or ambulance. And also like to hear from you if you or maybe your family have been affected and been uh, airlifted or, or, or whatever. If you, you know, just if you've got any questions or, or indeed, as I say, if your family have um, been uh, at the other end at the... Uh, at the end of being lifted and uh, taken to hospital with the air ambulance, just explaining what the service is all about, then give us a call. 0333 2020 401. 0333 2020 401. Uh, Jane, hello. Uh, good morning to you. Good morning, Ali. Good morning. Um, from someone who contributes every month to the air ambulance, because I think it's a very worthwhile cause, um, is it not possible that the people, not everybody, you know, don't, I'm not cauterizing everybody, but some people who are rescued from mountains and bad weather, not, can they not have to pay something towards the rescue? Is that not feasible? I'll uh, pass over to David for that one. Uh, good morning, Jane. Thanks for calling in. Um, it's it's uh, it's a very good and a very interesting and thought provoking question. I think the easy way for me to answer this is that you know in, in Scotland and the rest of the UK, we enjoy free healthcare, mm-hmm. um, which is part of, of what you and I pay mm-hmm. as taxpayers. And um, you know you know whilst you know the NHS can be pillared in in, in, in lots of places, um, I think we need to acknowledge the fantastic work that they actually do. Um, and anyone who can come into this country who is involved in an incident um, will be treated in exactly the same way. Mm. And I think it would be pretty unreasonable that you know you would effectively. Um, I wouldn't want to see you start charging people mm. for for instance in accidents. Um, and uh, you know I, I think that would be the wrong thing to do. I mean we are here to provide a free and I'll use that in inverted commas service mm. very much like the rest of the emergency service provision as well. I, I, don't, I don't think you could see the day that you would you would be charging people to to attend to them. No, I think more um, people who are up on mountains when they know the weather's bad and all the rest of it. Now, we all pay, yes, but I pay car insurance. If I'm in an accident, the insurance pay up. Surely, if they're on mountains, not car accidents, not people in accidents, but if they really shouldn't be up there, and I have a great fascination for helicopters, um, can they not get something through insurance to help towards the rescue? Is it not more on the way of uh, mountain rescue you're really thinking, though? Well, maybe, you know? no, but I just think if a helicopter goes out and somebody's picked up on a mountain and it's atrocious weather, that they should contribute something. What you're saying is if anybody is daft enough Mm -hmm, to go up a mountain mm -hmm. when it's heavy snow, then they should pay for their own rescue. I did say that. Totally agree with you, Jane. I wasn't going to say that. Ah, I will then, I will. (laughs) Okay, and just before I go, Ali, I would like to say, I was at, and you'll love this, I was at a wonderful concert last Sunday night, Sydney Divine. Oh dear. I right. know. <laughs> he, are, he did ask for you. <laughs> I bet he did. I did. <laughs> no, I know. It uh, we, was very, we are very good, good friends, no matter what we say about I know. each other. It was very good. Thank you very much, Thank Nigel. You. Thank you. Bye bye. Uh, that number again, 033 2020 uh, Back with more in a moment. You're listening to Scotland's Talking, the podcast. Join the conversation on Twitter at Scotland's Talking. Good morning to you. We are talking at the moment and finding out a wee bit more about Scotland's charity air ambulance and the plan to put uh, another helicopter in the sky. And uh, joining us is Chief Executive uh, David Craig. So, David, uh, we were talking there about the the possible location. Um, are there, uh, you, you know, you said you welcome the thoughts of our listeners, but are they qualified to to really give an opinion? Do you think as to where this should be, or will this go uh, round? And at the end of the day. As a, as a charitable organisation like yourself, have you got any uh, say in it or are you quite happy to go with the the location that the professionals tell you that is going to be the best place? Well, they would um, make a very strong recommendation you know, to, to our board. I think, yes, we do have a say in that, that matter. I think that's quite important. Um, but our partners know that as well. Um, you know, if we are the ones that are um, funding it, and when I say we, the collective we, then I think it's important that you know that we have those discussions, and and that's what 
good partnership working is actually all about is actually talking through you know the benefits and the pros and cons of, of, of particular locations the most important thing is about patient care and outcomes of patients you know so I think whatever the location is determined it's 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 that it will be that recommendation for the benefit of the patient and I think it would be um, I guess highly naive of us to sit and say no we don't believe that to be the right location we'd have to have a very strong argument for that but we're not the ones that's qualifying to do that that's the work of the Scottish Ambulance Service um, and we have um, representatives from the Scottish Ambulance Service that sit on our board who will guide and advise us accordingly as well. Right, Irene has texted in and she says, uh, David, we continually hear about shortage of paramedics for road ambulances when you, you've got to wait some time for uh, an ambulance or getting a paramedic. Um, there, there seems to be not a lot or not enough uh, paramedics. Therefore, for the road ambulances, so where are you going to get them for the, the air ambulance? Well, I, I guess there's two things there, and I'm not qualified to talk about what kind of goes on in, in, in lack of resources for land ambulances. The the paramedics are seconded to Scotland's charity and ambulance, um, but we pay for those paramedics, and, and they're recruited throughout the pool. Um, it's a slightly different role from a, your land ambulance paramedic because there's obviously um, a whole host of other things that they, they need to, to kind of be trained for. So at this moment in time, we have six paramedics and two pilots um, so in any one 12 hour shift we have two occasionally three depending on, on on what the shift pattern is and our plan moving forward is to exactly exactly the same so they will be recruited from from the pool within the Scottish Ambulance Service now whether there's a shortage of, of land ambulance par- paramedics I'd say I'm, I'm not qualified to kind of talk about that but I would think that it, part of that Scottish trauma network and implementation about that and um, there's a significant amount of funding that's going in to, to address that and that's also about kind of pre-hospital care and, and ambulance technicians and ambulance paramedics so there is a lot of funding going into that um, in, the, in the front line and I think we will ultimately benefit from that in the longer run Right. So the the process is then if if a paramedic, a road paramedic, if you want to put it that way, land paramedic, whatever you call it, um, is uh, serving in the Scottish Ambulance Service and you have a vacancy, you advertise it. And if they fancy um, spending a couple of years working for their ambulance, then that's that's how it goes. That's, That's how it's... Recruited. Well, the recruitment process is solely the responsibility of the Scottish Ambulance Service, so right. they will do the advertising for it. We are part of, I am part of that process as well, and we've just actually um, brought someone else on. Um, one of the paramedics has left, so we, we've just recruited another one, um, which brings us back up to six. But the whole process is driven by, by the Scottish Ambulance Service in terms of the recruitment of paramedics, as is the training as well. Okay. Once again, if you uh, David's only got with the bitters for another five minutes, so if you have a point you'd like to to put to him, then uh, give us a call now. O treble three twenty twenty four zero one. Or indeed, if you or your family have uh, benefited from the service from Scotland's Char- charity air ambulance, then uh, come on, tell us your story. And and because and uh, you know a lot of money has to be raised, so we need to get a lot of people talking uh, about Scotland's charity air ambulance. And uh, one thing that we're never short of is John Bissett talking. So, John, good morning to you. A very good morning, Ali, and good morning, David. Good morning, John. I think myself, well, in my younger days, I'd not Strathair Hospital, you know, by Brecon, and location on the A92 is a bad place. But locations, and I think myself, we've got Riverside Drive near Nine Wells Hospital has a trauma unit. Strathair Hospital has a, a, a trauma unit. I would like to see another three helicopter pads, please. Yeah, but you're talking about helicopter pads to land for the hospitals, aren't you? I mean, and, and Stracatho, to my knowledge, doesn't have a trauma unit. But um, I, I hear what you're saying. But we've already got uh, 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 the current charity at Ambulance. I'm answering for David here, so apologies. But we've already got uh, one in Schoon. So having one in Dundee wouldn't, you know, it's, it's not a, a non-starter. So we're really looking at a choice, am I right, David, in, in Inverness, Aberdeen, Edinburgh, Glasgow? Is that the... Is that the thoughts at the moment, or indeed further uh, south? I, I think very open-minded on on, on all of that. Um, I think wherever it's, it's going to be, um, I think you know it would need to be probably located near 
I think, one of those mm-hmm. trauma centres. Um, but as I say, you know, there's a whole piece of work that's going on just now and a whole consultation going on um, with the Scottish Ambulance Service and, and, and at, at, at that level. Um, we will get the output of that, I think, over the you know, certainly by the end of this calendar year, if, if not sooner. Um, and then we can sit down, map out what the actual fundamental requirements are and where we're going to be. So, you know, bringing a helicopter in is one thing, but we need to have, Ms. John Cena, we need to have a, you know, a helipad landing facility. Mm-hmm. We need to have a part of an operation there as well. So it's not just about a helicopter. That is a trigger for everything else. So I think the sooner we know what the location is, is going to be, then we can start planning. And it and involves, you know, the support team as well, doesn't it? As you say, it's not just a, a case of saying, right, we'll, we'll put it there. You've got the whole support team to go with it. Will that continue from Schoon or will you need additional people? Well, I think it's fair to say we'll probably require some additional people over the next few years as well. The, the priority is to, is, to, is to raise this £6 million, you know, and um, the sooner we can do that, then the sooner we can bring this into service a lot of the work will be done in advance of that so we will know at key points during this that this process as to when we need to start looking at what type of helicopter when the recruitment of six paramedics is needed when the training needs to be planned it's the same with the pilots it's like the operation as well so there are you know it's effectively getting all your ducks in the row to be able to you know in place to to trigger everything that's going to take a lot of work with a lot of people and we've got a fantastic team at the charity um you know we're all fully committed to to the organization we're all very passionate about it and i think we're all probably like kids at christmas time in some respects which mm. is we can see it we can see it happening we know it's a bit of a time to get to that point um but we're we're not going to be frustrated by it either the most important thing is let's let's tell the story about why we need it and, and being on you know this that this talking show gives us an opportunity to do that gives us an opportunity to present the case and why we need that continued support and really the people of scotland will hopefully support us and when they do support us we'll get that helicopter in service and available um, 12 hours a day and how can they support you now what, what would you like them to do if, you know well, there's a, there's a number of things. I mean, obviously, you know, you can go into our, our website, which is uk, and there's a donate button on there for, for people to give. Um, there is um, the opportunity to join our weekly lottery, and it gives you the chance of, of winning something if, if you're so minded to do that. Um, you can make those one-off donations. We have a whole host of events that people can participate in. You can run your own event. Um, if you're working for an organisation and you've got a kind of corporate social responsibility programme or you work with charities on an annual basis and adopt them as charity of the years, then um, at least consider us for that. Um, or if you've just got some time on your hands, a bit like yourself, Ali, and um, you know if you want to go around the country talking about the work of Scotland's Charity and Ambulance, then we'll train you, we will help you. Um, and it's about spreading that that word. So if you've got time to do that, um, or any one of those, then we would love to hear from you. It's a great charity, and I, I thoroughly enjoy um, going out and talking. And it's amazing the different cups of teas and various other things you get going out there as well. Uh, David, thank you very much indeed for coming in and, uh, and starting us off with, with talking about that. And that's what this morning was about: was to, to talk about Scotland's charity air ambulance. Because uh, when I go to these talks, it is amazing the amount of people who don't know about uh, the charity. Uh, and with this money to to be raised, and with the amazing amount of stories that I know and you know uh, of people who have been rescued and whose lives have been saved. You know, it's as simple as that. We, you know, the charity and the paramedics, the team do save lives by getting the patients back to hospital in that time critical situation. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think I would just like to just extend a thank you to you, to all the listeners um, and to the people who kind of phone in to these um, kind of talking shows um, and who have been supporting us. It, it, it is, you know, say it is very remarkable. What they, what they actually do um, so I would just make that appeal to all your listeners across you know the Scotland's Talking show to continue to support us and uh, if you support us or if you haven't supported us then at least consider to do so in the future yeah. and the best way to do that is go on your website because it gives every, all the information there it's great absolutely even down to somebody who wants to take collecting cans and put them in the local shops and things like that because that is really important yeah ab- absolutely and if you, if you happen to fill up one of the petrol stations as well you might see the opportunity for us to kind of give and it's 
you know, 25 pence, it's chip and pin, mm. you know, you, you don't even notice it these days. But that alone brings in quite a substantial amount of income for us. So there's a variety of ways for, for people to support us. David, thank you very much indeed. Scotland's talking at quarter to 11. Got um, uh, through social media, is it text? Yeah, it's a text. Uh, Alex him. Alex, thank you for getting in touch. He says, uh, I knew, it's what, what I like about this programme on a Sunday is that I find out things. I knew absolutely nothing about Charity Air Ambulance in Scotland. I now know about it and going on the, their website to find out a little bit more. Fascinating uh, charity. It really is and does loads of great work as well. So Alex, thank you very much indeed. Go and look around uh, their, their website and you'll find a lot there. Did you know, here's another one you might know of, uh, did you know this is the year of young people, 2018? We'll finding out about, about that in the next hour of the programme. You're listening to Scotland's Talkin', the podcast. Join the conversation on Twitter at Scotland's Talkin'. Sunday morning, it's Ali Bally with you on Scotland's Talkin'. And in this hour, we'll be asking you and turning your attention to the question of politeness and good manners, if you'd be so kind. Uh, So uh, it's sort of aimed at children, but I'm more thinking to myself, starts with the parents, but we'll come to that. Uh, We'll also, of course, have any other business where you can talk about anything that's in the news this week uh, that's been going on. Um, For instance... um, Lib Dems are suggesting that 16-year-olds should be able to stand for as an MSP uh, on, and take up their position as an MSP. That's been interesting. Well, what do you think of that? 16 too young, do you think? Uh, or indeed, would they be uh, more in touch uh, with the world and what's going on than some of our current MSPs? We'll come to that as well. So you may want to comment on that in any other business. I'm going to spend the next part of the programme finding out about the Year of the Young People 2018, which is happening across Scotland. And the beauty of this programme, that um, we, we have this network of stations across Scotland, is that we can get guests to go into various studios, which is great. And that's been what's happening this morning. Um, so we, we've had David uh, in our Dundee studio, and we've got uh, uh, Ailey coming up in to talk about this in our Aberdeen studio. We've got Glasgow as well. So it's great. It's great we can bring them all together and find the best guests for you. So... Uh, The Year of the Young People 2018, if it's the first you've heard about it, I can tell you it's something that's been organised so generations can come together and celebrate Scotland's young people and give them a stronger voice on issues which affect their lives. So joining me now is Kate Samuels, who's from an organisation called Generations Working Together. Kate, good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Just making sure you're there. All right, that's it. <laughs> and also, Basit Rashid, who is 20. Uh, morning, Basit. Good morning. How are you Good morning. doing? I'm okay, thank you. And 19-year-old Chloe Cockle. Morning, Chloe. Good morning. And they're volunteers with TEDx Glasgow, and they're working on putting together an event in Glasgow next month to inspire young people and get them thinking about things that they can do with their life. Um, so let's, let's start with Kate then. Kate... Um, from the organisation called Generations Working Together, what does that mean? What what is it, what does the organisation do? Basically, as it sounds, so we connect the two generations together, usually the youngest and the oldest people in the community. Um, we're a membership-led organisation, so we have uh, over two thousand five hundred members. And um, what they do is that they're interested in connecting generations together in the community. So we support different projects that do that. We also run our own projects. So, for example, just now what we're doing is bringing older volunteers into schools in um, Perth Thinking Ross mm-hmm. um, to try and improve literacy and numeracy. Um, and we also have a project which is called Generations on Screen in Renfrewshire, which is basically making films um, for the younger people and residents in care homes. So it is as it sounds. Uh, what we're trying to do is to challenge uh, different barriers that come with age. We're trying to connect generations together 
and we're trying to um, get people to um, come together in positive ways. So a lot of the times you'll hear quite negative things, you know, about generations, yep, yep. Um, things around housing, for example, um, the way young people are seen, you know, when they're out in the communities or in the streets. So basically we are challenging the stereotypes and trying to inspire people to start their own projects in their communities as well. And how did you get involved? Um, so I've been employed in Generations Working Together just over a year. Um, what I do is a communication and policy in the charity, uh, which basically means that I share different stories with different people um, about these projects. Um, and the way um, I heard about it is um, basically I was very interested because um, when I was younger, I was raised by my grandparents. So I thought this was a fabulous idea, you know, bringing the two generations together and really reconnecting the communities together as well. Are we good in Scotland at generations working together? Are, are you know do do they do you think we could do better? I do definitely think that we could do better. Um, a lot of the times we share different stories from different countries, for example, from Spain, from Scandinavian countries, from America. And I think in a lot of those countries, um, intergenerational work is a lot more established. I do think that we're off to a good start in Scotland, especially through last year. There's been a lot of new projects starting, but we could definitely do better, I think. Yes. OK. Uh, Basid and Chloe, volunteers with TEDx Glasgow. Um, Basid, you're 20 in the news this morning. Uh, the plan to um, allow 16-year-olds, or they should be allowed to be MSPs. Do you fancy being one? And uh, no, I'm all right, thanks. <laughs> <laughs> You've got better things to do with your day. <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm not, I'm not uh, what do you call it? I'm not ready for that kind of position, to be honest. <laughs> That's what I'm thinking, you know, uh, is a 20-year-old, do they want to land, land themselves with that responsibility? Chloe, you're 19, what about you? Oh, personally, I'm not, oh, I, I'm not confident <laughs> with that sort of stuff. I do like to get involved with politics and I like to have my own opinion and have conversations about it, but would not like to be the enforcer and have to sit in that chamber with those people. <laughs> with those people. They could come in as the older generation, Chloe. They, that could be them. This is true. This is true. <laughs> right, so you're both volunteers with TEDx. Uh, Actually, say, I'm a speaker, just so, like, just to let you know. What do you mean you're a speaker? There you are, you're ready made to go into the Scottish Parliament then. <laughs> Half of them can't speak. <laughs> right, so what does a speaker do then? No, I'm actually speaking at the TEDx event and Chloe's uh, part of the organising team. I'm going to you, event. Right, yeah. right, okay, I'm with you now. So speaking about what? I'm speaking, well, my topic is about self-talk. So we all have a, I guess, voice in our head pretty much that is our thoughts. And a lot of the time it's quite negative, which is like, you're not worthy, you're not good enough, and it's like bringing you down. Eventually that that repeats in your head every day and it becomes your identity. And from that identity you take action and just talking about how that's limiting you in life and how to break it down and live your full potential in life. What a great way to look at life. You know, I, you know what that reminds me of? Um, a few years ago I was asked to go into a school okay. to talk about careers and where people can go, you know. Um, about radio and things like that. So I did it one year and then they asked me back the next year and then they never asked me back again. And I, and I, and I made the, the inquiry as to, you know, was everything okay? And, well, the second year they actually said to me, you know when last year you said that if they go for a career and they don't like it, that's okay, they can change it? I said, yes. Well, could you not say that, please? Because we don't think they should be doing that. And I thought, dearie me, so that's why I never got asked back. Um, because, you know, the, the, the school felt that if you went for a career, you should go for it. But surely, you know, if, if you, uh, like uh, Basid, if you have this in your mind that you take up a, a career and you don't like it, your, your mind's saying, I don't like going into this job every day. You should go and find something you enjoy, should you not? 100%, exactly. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. So... Are these negative thoughts that that's coming up, you know, that your speech is about, was that you as a younger person? Did you, did you suffer from that, from um, low esteem, so to speak? 100%. Uh, really? That was for the first, I think, 19 years of my life, so, or 18 years of my life. So only the last two years I've changed it myself through testing myself. That's what the whole talk is about because um, from, like, when I was young all the way till 18 my negative self-talk was getting worse and worse and worse. Eventually, when I was around the age of, eight, age of 18, I began contemplating suicide. That's how bad my self-talk got. So I really 
is a really um, personal topic to me and I know how bad it can get. Do you mind asking me, or me asking you, what was bringing that about? Could you talk a wee bit about that? The negative self-talk? Yeah, yeah, because I'm just thinking that, you know, there'll be many of my listeners, and I'm thinking of the older generation here, who who just maybe don't understand that. So tell, tell us, explain it a wee bit more. Well, the negative talk started when I was young because I was diagnosed with Crohn's disease when I was eight years old. And since then, um, I was getting my hopes up all the time to hopefully like, the symptoms would go away because I was trying all these treatments out and none of the treatments were working. And I was just failing, failing, failing. And my health was getting worse and worse. And I spent almost all my days just in my room, just thinking of myself as broken, pathetic, weak. And just that self-talk became my identity. And whenever an opportunity would come up to like, do this in, like do this interview right now, that an opportunity like this would come up, I would never accept it because that wasn't my identity. I was a victim. I was someone born to suffer. So it really held me back in life. And now it's just about helping people get out of that victim mentality or whatever self-image you've adopted and actually live their true potential. Because you only get one life. It's like make the most of it. Mm. I mean, Crohn's disease, Crohn's is such a, a debilitating illness anyway. It brings you down. It makes you feel... Oh, yucky and, 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 and to have that at eight years old and through your teenage life must have been hell it was that's yeah just but I think the thing I learned from it is which is why my talk isn't about Crohn's it's about more about the thoughts you have yeah. I think the thoughts were much much worse than the Crohn's symptoms ever could have been because I was putting myself in a position to not live life whereas with Crohn's yes it was debilitating but I could still do things but in my mind I said I couldn't do it so that's the thing that we can all change about ourselves. You might not change the symptoms of Crohn's, you can change your mind and your thoughts. What was the turning point for you, for your mind to change then? It was actually um, a near-death experience. I was in the hospital and my doctor came in and told me that things were not looking good and that he had a patient like me and sadly she passed away. And that was the moment for me that really woke me up, that made me look back on my life full of regret, just thinking, what have I done with my life? I just wasted it, sitting on my couch, calling myself weak, pathetic, and never actually seizing life. And then from that moment, I've completely turned my life around. Fabulous. Chloe, tell us a bit about the TEDx Glasgow event then. So the TEDx Youth uh, Glasgow event is a conference for 12 to 26 year olds um, across Scotland. And uh, features speakers like Bassett. um, And we've also got demo labs and just loads of innovative, interesting, inspiring um, things to get young people thinking, active, inspired. Uh, it's a great opportunity because um, there is a current TEDx Youth Glasgow over 26 event mm-hmm. and this is the first one um, in Scotland that's uh, been for youth and it really just works well. We've had a lot of great reception, a lot of people inspired and um, as you can see, as you hear, like people like Bassett, it's just an amazing opportunity for them to share their story because there are so many young people who are affected by things. Do you have are... do you have trouble getting these young people to get involved? Well, it comes from different areas of young people. So we've got um, people from our colleges, so like Glasgow Keg College, City of Glasgow College. They're really up for getting involved, um, volunteering at the event, speaking at the event. It's more, you know, convincing people who think, oh, no, that's not for me to come along. And that's kind of what we're trying to do right now is show, no, it's not just for people who are in higher education or from a private school. It's for anybody and everybody who would like to come along. We heard earlier Kate talking about um, getting the generations working together. What about you and the older generations? Uh, are, Are your team finding you get the negatives from the older generation or are they on board and quite enthusiastic about this? Well, the reception that I've had is that all the older people, the older generation have been really receptive, really encouraging and really enthusiastic about it. Uh, I think the most part is they don't really know what it is. And once you explain it to them, they're really on board. Um, Our lecturer, uh, he's really involved. We've got our project manager, who's 30. She's involved. Oh, that's really Um, old. Yeah, (laughs) yeah, yeah. I have no chance then. (laughs) No, (laughs) I mean, because it's a 12 to 26 year old event, people think, oh, no, I can't do it, I'm over 26, but that's not true. It's just as long as you know that you can share things that the youth will be interested in. Kate, um, older and younger or younger generations, uh, what are they learning from each other, do you think? 
so much. Um, so they can learn skills from each other. For example, um, IT being one, you know, you hear quite a lot about the younger people teaching older people IT skills, uh, but there's so much more. So they could be doing sports together. They could be doing cooking together. Um, as well as those skills, what they're learning from each other is understanding, you know, of both generations, uh, tolerance, um, health and well-being has improved quite a lot in these projects. That's one of the things that is measured. Um, also, as well as that, these projects can help with loneliness for both age groups. So that is something that's been in the news quite a lot within the last year or so. Um, loneliness and tackling loneliness and how do we do it? And um, it has been shown to that through these projects, loneliness can be tackled for both age groups as well. I heard of a, a project recently. I, was, I don't know if it was a project or it was, it was just some uh, young person talking to me who was going into uh, a care home uh, mm-hmm. sort of once a week and doing, showing them how to, to do Xbox games and things like that, you know. And she was absolutely loving it because it was giving something back. But she says the, the people in the home were just... Oh, I couldn't possibly do that. But within a, a, a few hours, you know, being in there, they're all into their, their Xbox and everything mm-hmm. now. So again, that's that's what it is. That's the generations working together, isn't it? Yes. Yeah, so that's a good example, actually. A lot of the children, young people do go into care homes because care homes um, sometimes have the loneliest people, you know, in our society. Um, and actually, um, that is quite common to be a bit hesitant or unsure at the start, you know, for both age groups. So for the older people to say, oh, maybe this will be no benefit to me. You know, I don't see what I could get out of it. But once they start getting involved and, you know, they spend a few hours with the younger people and you see just how much enthusiasm and how much change in them that you see as a result of these projects. So, yes. I think it's a, that's a, a good example. It's a great project because it's, it's the learning from each other, really, aren't they? Mm-hmm, and, mm-hmm. and also the young people going in to these uh, places, you know, into residential homes to um, give their experience and, and, and teach them something new, really, something that they, they probably never thought that they would get into. Yeah, um, it's a two-way street. You know, to be a true intergenerational project, what you need to do is benefit both generations. It can't just be one generation helping the other, you know, for example, the younger people helping older people it needs to be both and what it needs to do is to have a benefit for the community so once a project is over what it does is it creates friendships um, it creates understanding and also helps both the younger and the older people to have uh, friends from other generations Fabulous, right. Uh, Basid, if I can just ask you, it's not totally on where we are at the moment, but what do you, what you know with your positive thoughts in your mind? What are you now going to tackle? What's, what's the future for you? The future, hopefully, for me is to become... Well, my, my aims are to become a speaker around the topic of... Um, I don't know to speak... Not mental health, because mental health is very broad topic to talk about pretty much but it's about the thoughts and mindset I guess mindset and personal development because that's my main experience I've got two years of that where like I went through pretty much hell like the first half of my life and the last two years have been me working on getting better and right now I'm in the best place of my life I'm not perfect no one's perfect but it's just what I've learned from my experiences which can be adopted by pretty much anyone. Great. Well, well done on uh, your journey so far. I think you've got a great uh, journey ahead of you, Basid, uh, with that positive thinking there. So, so Thank well you done. Much. I hope it all goes well. Chloe, tell us about uh, the event, where it is and how people can get involved. So the event is on the 31st of May at the SEC um, Exhibition Centre and it's also in the Armadillo. So the talks will be taking place in the Armadillo and the Demo Labs in the SECC. Um, it's on from 11 a.m. till 4 p.m. and people can get involved by going on to any of our social media accounts. We've got Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, just TEDx Youth Glasgow uh, as the handle and also you can visit the website which is tedxglasgow.com slash youth and you're able to buy tickets there, um, ask us any questions, give us an email if you want to be involved. Uh, yeah, and it's really open to anyone mm-hmm. Um and there's going to be so much diversity both um, involved in the event and attending the event. So it really is just for everybody to get involved. Fabulous. Chloe, Bassett and Kate, thank you very much indeed for, for joining us this morning. Um, I'll throw it open and say, what are your experiences of young people? Are they generally positive or negative? 
And out with your own family, how much contact do you have with the younger or older generations? Do you think that the year of the young people is something that we should all be talking about and indeed celebrating? Um, I'll be chatting to Ailey Errol Mitchell, who's in our Aberdeen studio, and uh, she's got a good story to tell as well how she has sort of turned things around. Uh, we'll chat to her in a moment. Scotland's Talking, the podcast. Scotland's Talking on a Sunday morning and we're talking about the year of the young person and also looking for some uh, people who are a bit of an inspiration. And my guest joining me now can come into that little fact there. Uh, Ailey Errol Mitchell joins us. Uh, Ailey, a very good morning to you. How are you? I'm very good, thank you. How are you? I'm okay. Yes, I'm good, thanks. Now, we, we're here to hear a bit about your story. And um, I, I'm, from what I believe, it started off when, you know, you had your own health struggles, didn't you? Tell us a bit about that, if you don't mind. Um, yes. When I was six years old, I was diagnosed with scoliosis. Um, by the time I was seven, I was wearing a plastic back brace 23 hours a day, um, which is like a medieval corset. It's horrible to wear. Mm. Um, it's very straining. It's, um, it's really hard to breathe and move. And the only hour I'd get it off a day would be to do activity or if I'd eaten a large meal, it would get really tight. So I basically would have had to take it off for comfort. So when you when at that age and you're wearing that, how long did you have to wear that for? I wore it till I was 11 years old. Really? Yeah. And is that then the time that they can go in and operate? Yeah, so when I was 11, I'd um, basically hit... hit was old enough to have the surgery because I'd once you had the surgery, your spine doesn't grow any further. Right. So if they do the, the surgery too young, then you don't grow. So when I was 11, I got a full spinal fusion, um, leaving me with only two vertebrae. The rest is one solid bone held together with titanium bolts, screws and rods. Wow. And, and, and that's with you now forever. And how has it been? Has, has it been um, a, a great success as far as you're concerned? Or, or is, has it still left you uh, with a bit of a, a, a curved spine? What has it done to you? I mean, compared to what my spine was before, I mean, you'd never know anything was wrong with me. There's still a slight curve, but by the time I was 11, I was pretty deformed. I looked like the hunchback in Notre Dame and I was bent over and... It was really quite awful, but I think you don't... I didn't see it in myself, but to a lot of other people who could see me, it, it did look strange. Um, but it made me the person I am today, um, wearing that back brace, and you had to be quite a strong kid to get through it all. Um, yeah, because other kids are cruel, aren't they? Well, other kids are cruel, but I was incredibly lucky at primary school and high school. I had a great group of friends around me and all my teachers, and everyone was really understanding um, and I know I had I was pretty lucky and I made friends with other kids in the hospital who I know did get bullied and who didn't have such an easy time as I did and I'm just very grateful for that. So where did you grow up and go to school? Who do we say thanks to them then? Which school did you go to? So I grew up in in Perth actually in a village called Lunkerty. Know it well. So yes. I went to Lunkerty Primary School and then I went to Perth Grammar School at high school. Fantastic. Now, what is what is that experienced inspired you to do? So I think being ill as a, as a child and being in the hospital in Edinburgh, seeing loads of other kids with all kinds of deformities and broken bones, um, it's inspired me to try and change the look of prosthetics. Um, I've, I'm not quite sure where at what point along the line prosthetics became such an important thing to me because I did go through a, a different story to what these children do but um, mm -hmm. it, it's a huge interest of mine. So you're actually involved, am I right, with the NHS at the moment to improve the look and feel of prosthetic limbs and, and stuff like that. Is that right? So I, I did a work experience, um, short work experience in the NHS, just basically watching the technicians make prosthetics um, and I made friends with one of the technicians who basically gives me a year and a on, on whether or not he thinks thinks they're good ideas and he's always really encouraging. And do you see this then as the career? That's what you want to do? It, it's a difficult one because, um, my I mean, I'm a product designer, so that's, that's what I am to trade and that's what I love. Um, and I love everything about new technologies, but I also love my project. And it's a nice project to have on the side of working, 
because it's something that I um, it's enjoyable to do and it's creative, but it's also really it gets a giving project. So I, I like having it on the side of my job. So it's mm-hmm. something to do in the evenings and the weekends. And then I get it's an interesting subject to talk to people about as well. well Bet it is, yeah. You were also named Inspiring Female Under 30, compiled by the Young Women's Movement. That must mean a, a wee feather on your cap for you. Oh, yeah, that was amazing. It was um, it was actually quite a whirlwind um, when I got nominated. I was, I was quite shocked because there's some pretty huge, inspiring women that were also um, on that list and... I was just honoured to be alongside them. What advice would you give to young people listening to the programme today who maybe feel themselves stuck in a rut and are looking for some guidance, some inspiration like yourself? What would your advice be to them? I mean, I ever since I was a kid, I've always been taught by my parents to be as positive as I can. I think positivity is such an important part of life because if you're just not happy and you're not positive, then there's you don't really have anything pushing you. Um, so I always I have this thing where I just try and smile as much as I can because it makes you feel so much happier. Um, and I think young people in Scotland um, we're we're really lucky um, because we're 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 at quite a changing point in in our um, in our lives where we're we're much more interested in the environment. We're much more socially aware, and I think our generation is a is, is it's a great time to be alive. Fantastic. Thank you very much indeed uh, to Ailey there for her thoughts and uh, her story as well on uh, the year of young people 2018. So some some great inspirational thoughts there from our young people, you know. Uh, what can older and younger generations learn from each other, do you think? And do we hear enough about and do we hear enough positive things that young people are doing with their lives? Hopefully uh, you've heard some this morning. But if you've got a comment, uh, you know the number, 0333 2020 You can give me a text on 61054. Start your message with Ali. Uh, we'll be going and opening the lines as always. Don't open anyway, but we'll give you a chance to come in with any other business. Uh, but also turning our attention to the question of politeness and good manners. Do you think the magic words please and thank you are falling out of fashion? And if they are, is technology to blame? The internet shopping and technology giant Amazon has announced changes to its Alexa smart assistant. Now, if you haven't come across one, it's a household device with a speaker and a microphone which responds when you speak to it, usually... Sorry, I'm having trouble understanding right now. Please try a little later. Yes, I've had that a few times. Um, you can ask it to find you information from the internet, order a product from Amazon's website, or even tune into Scotland's Talking. But earlier this year, there was a report warning that children who grew up barking orders at a virtual personality might become aggressive with real people in later life. So very soon in America, parents will be able to set up their Alexa so it encourages their kids to say please and thank you when they ask it to do things and it will reply thanks for asking so nicely or you're welcome so do we need more of that in the real world as well as the digital world i would say so you know do we really need a machine to teach your kids to say um you know as i say yes Please, you're welcome, all that type of stuff. What are your thoughts on manners? O Treble 3 2020 401. Uh, a few texts coming through in that already. Uh, let's just go back. We were talking earlier about Scotland's charity air ambulance. Uh, here's one from uh, Liz that says, Morning, I think we definitely need another uh, air ambulance so we can get patients to hospital by the quickest route as and with the volume of traffic on our roads, along with our adverse weather. The air ambulance is a lifeline as every second counts when it comes to saving people's lives. Hope they get the money that's needed for Scotland's second charity air ambulance. Thank you very much indeed for that. Coming up next on Scotland's Talkin'. Any other business? Anything else? 
anything we haven't covered today that you want to get off your chest? You know, is there something that's been really, really annoying you this week and you want to just come on and tell us about it? Well, give us a call now. 0333 2020 401. It's any other business. Anything, doesn't matter what the subject is. But I, I do like the one today that is suggesting that 16-year-olds should be able to stand uh, for the Scottish Parliament as MSPs. We heard from two uh, of those earlier <laughs> through to one uh, twenty one nineteen. They said, no thanks. Uh, what are your thoughts on that? 0333 2020 401. Or, of course, any other subject. Scotland's Talking, the podcast. Alice is on the line. Alice, hello, good morning to you. Good morning, Ali. Your point then? I was shopping in one of the Glasgow shopping centres yesterday with my daughter and my grandson, and we could hear screaming. We're talking about children. And there was a child screaming, having a tantrum, and his mum was standing behind him, trying to calm him down beside a busy road, and he's screaming and kicking. There was a toddler there too, and the mum said to him, I'm not letting you go, you'll have a go at him again. So I can only assume he was hurting his little brother. Mm-hmm. And I thought I should go over and try to help, and then common sense prevailed. I thought that's the last thing that lady needs is somebody drawing attention to her. She's got it under control. She wasn't hurting the child. She was restraining him. She was obviously well experienced in what was happening. I thought he might have autism, he might have some other condition that's causing that, and she's dealing with it. Must have been upsetting. An older lady came by, tutted, and was very vocal in saying the woman should be reported that was child cruelty. And she looked at me directly, and I said, you don't know the circumstances. I think she's trying to stop him from hurting himself or the other child. So she snarled at me, two wrongs don't make a right, and she proceeded over to people, the workers who were standing outside, whether they were supervisors, outside the centre. I went inside and left it, and I thought, people do not realise a child having a tantrum is a very, very difficult thing. And if the child does have special needs, the child, the, the parent is under extreme pressure to try to deal with everything that's going on round about. We shouldn't make snap judgments unless we can see somebody is hurting a child. Mm-hmm. So that's what happened yesterday. It bothered me. However, I just felt the right thing to do was leave the mum to get on with what she was doing properly for her child. And this, the other lady of the elder generation... Um, yeah. When it comes to, you know, what we're talking about there, not just the year of the young people, but the young mums who are trying to cope with a situation like that, um, she could probably have, you know, you're saying you didn't want to interfere and you didn't want to help. Uh, well, or, or you to want help. to help, yeah, but I understand that. But I'm, I'm just thinking she could probably have done with more of your help than, than the sarcastic comments from this old dear walking past, really, couldn't she? Yes, well, I've grandchild who in the shopping centre was screaming. Well, it's 21 months and a 21 month child will do that. So you're very aware. My daughter's very good with them. You know, she'll distract them or do X, Y and Z. But you can feel, but everybody was, everybody recognises that. Well, most people. I think, I think possibly that particular child had a special need beside a busy road if she'd let him go mm-hmm. he would have run into traffic yep. or he may well have run after his wee brother and attacked him again and I just think people shouldn't be so quick to judge Okay, Alice thank you very much indeed for uh, for your call Betty, what do you think of the year of the younger people then? Well, this is actually about Alexa teaching the children manners Okay. and in a lighter note about generations learning from each other uh, I was watching television with my three-year-old grandson not long ago, and it was a pro-bra- program about a fun fair. And I related a story to him about when I was younger, getting on what they called the dive bombers, and I was terrified and explained it to him when they were revolving round about. Every time it came to the bottom, I shouted to the man, let me off, let me off. And he said, and did the man let you off? I said, no, he didn't. He said, well, Granny, maybe if you'd said please, (laughs) he would have. (laughs) So that was you in your place by a three-year-old? Yes, it was that. 
Oh, great, yes. I, I, I'm not quite convinced that Alexa's um, the answer for the future. No, so that was me learning from a younger generation. Quite right. Well, thank you, Betty, for telling us that story. Okay. Thank you, thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. Uh, as we get towards the end of the programme, uh, Saul has been answering your calls and um, watching over Twitter as well. I've got some emails uh, here. Morning, so Good morning. Uh, you're the young person, um, uh, uh, and you you're fall into that category. I do. 16-year-old uh, standing for Scottish Parliament, you would fall into that category as well. Would you go for it? Um, no. Right, okay, <laughs> that's simply, right. no. No, right, okay. Uh, here's one that comes in, and it's from Margaret, and she says, Sorry, it shouldn't be the machine teaching children manners. It should be parents. I have a three-year-old granddaughter who, when she wants to leave the table after a meal, says, Please, I leave the table. She also says, Thank you, when given something. Her own mum never says, Please or thank you, when wanting something. My other grandchildren also say, Please or thank you. Yes, I see, I think the majority are taught, you know. Okay, what do you got? Greg's tweeted in to say maybe Alexa should be for the parents. Kids that don't remember their P's and Q's say more about the parents bringing them up than the kids themselves. That's very true. Uh, Helen from Kilburnie here. I'm involved with a project at present at the local community hub. An archive film is being made about women who worked in the local Knox Mill, which was initially and partially remains so today, making fishing nets, but also manufactures carpet fibres before forwarding them to other carpet factories. Myself and another five or six women are taking part. School children from the local academy who are sitting the Duke of Edinburgh Awards are also involved. So together, they're both learning from each other which is great thank you perfect um, John says that he's got an Alexa and a six year old who couldn't understand why Alexa didn't respond to please so he thinks it's a great idea that's been reprogrammed I think that a young child should be taught by their parents to say please and thank you and not left to technology uh, says this one but if the parents fail to teach them manners then yes it would be a good idea to have something in place so the child can grow up to be a well balanced human being Bit like us, really. (laughs) (laughs) Um, A final one from me, and it's on the Year of the Young People. Bob thinks that younger generations should get out there, get a job, um, make life what they want out of it. Right. Um, And they need to earn success. And he was saying get off their backsides, basically. Uh, well, I wasn't going to say that, but no, if you said it, there you, you go. Yeah, no, you deserve to put down for that one because, you know, you're all right, Bob, until you, you said that. You're, you're um, disrespecting the youth, but thanks for that. Um, don't get me started, says this one, final one. Uh, I went to two local shops today, said please and thank you, got no reply whatsoever. Hate bad manners, as mum always told herself for not respecting people. Thank you, Gregor. Uh, by the way, the best two hours of the Day. Thank you very much indeed. Right. Uh, I agree. Sometimes when you go into a shop and you know they don't even mm-hmm. lift their head, they don't say thank you, nothing. Yeah. I do. Do you? Yeah. Yeah, right. Okay. <laughs> Listen, we've got to get out of here. Thank you very much indeed. This has been Scotland's Talking. Uh, thank you to Saul for answering the calls. Oh, to all my guests today, which was uh, great. And also to you for listening. Enjoy the rest of your Sunday. Bye bye.